Well, good morning, everyone. Love that song. I texted Mike during the week when I, I was listening to that song and just preparing for the message. I just really, really like it. I'm uh, Mike Rutledge, by the way, if you don't know who I am. I'm the director of arts here at K2. And I, I love just this burgeoning group of creatives that we have. Uh, um, we're new stuff. We're, we're, we're writing our own stuff and expressing here from within the body. It's really, really cool to me to see that. And uh, I really love that song. What's interesting to me about it, I, I told the band before, I feel like it's maybe a little misnamed because it's called Psalm 46, but it's actually a reflection or a response, Mike's visceral response to Psalm 46. Um, and I, you probably picked up on that there. See, that, that psalm makes some pretty interesting, pretty bold claims. And um, check, check, just check out the lyrics. He says, do you say you're a refuge, never present help in trouble? I don't see it. Do you see that she needs you? Because it's her break of day, the earth in uproar, desolation. She needs you to melt it all away. She needs you. It's the break of day, the mountains quaking, kingdoms, uh, kingdoms falling. She needs you to hear her calling. She's calling. I need you to hear me calling. Yeah, I'm calling. You'll be honest. When you read God's word, when you read the Bible... Do you ever have a reaction that relates to that? Where you read these claims that God makes in the word, in the Bible, and you look at the circumstances in your life and you go, I don't see it. Any, honestly, anyone ever relate to that? You know, it, it, what's really interesting is, I think if we're all honest, probably most of us would raise our hands. Probably all of us. In I want to do something a little different than the way I normally would give a message today, and I feel, believe that's what God is sort of asking me to do. And um, but I, you know, we come in here on Sundays, and and um, we show up and we carry our Bibles, or I guess our phones, right? Um, and we have a smiley face because we're at church, and we just kind of hear God's word, and we go home. And the, the reality is that for for all of us. We deal with the heaviness of life the other six days, right? And we come into work, and a lot of times we carry that stuff with us, and we bring it in here with us. I don't know about you. Maybe your week is like crazy busy. You just feel like you can't catch up to yourself. It's running away with you. Or maybe you feel like your week is taking a year. Your hours seem like days, and your days seem like months, making no traction, or you feel like... I, mean, I don't know, maybe you're, you've got tremendous work, stress at work. Maybe uh, you're wondering where your next payment for your rent or for your house is coming from. Maybe you or someone close to you is dealing with a disease or some sickness. Maybe you're battling an addiction. Maybe you just, I talked to a friend of mine just last week doesn't believe he's even lovable, doesn't believe anyone can love him. Maybe you just feel tired, worn out, you feel like throwing in the towel, wrestling to believe that God even exists. And the list goes on and 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 on. And I want to ask you in just, just for a moment to, be, to trust me and to be vulnerable with me. Because I want to ask you to do something that might make you a little uncomfortable, and it's just this. 
If anything in this list, or even as you heard that song, if you feel like, yeah, I relate to that, that's that, yes. If you can relate to that, just will you do me a favor? Just raise your hand. Keep it up. Okay. While your hand is in the air, I want you to do something else. Stand up. Because here's what I believe God ask, is wanting me to do today. I believe we come into this place and we carry the heaviness and the stress and the struggles of life and we bring it with us. We don't leave it at the door. And I believe that God wants me to pray with you and for you. So here's the uncomfortable part. You guys just lift your hands up in the air like you're just going to receive something from God. Sorry if this makes you uncomfortable. Just do this with me. And I want to pray for you. Jesus, I look through this group of people. I see the majority of us standing, and probably, if we were all honest, probably every single person would be standing in this moment and just saying, yes, I'm struggling. I have stuff in my life. My kids are out of control, or my relationships are falling apart, my wife's leaving me, why did this person touch me that way? Why did she reject my, whatever it is, we struggle every day through our lives and we come here on a Sunday and we put on the smiley face and it's not okay. And you want to release us and free us and be our help and our refuge. And I pray over this congregation, Jesus, you put the weight on my heart to say, may your blessing and your love and your truth and your grace and your hope and your mercy and your joy fall on every single person in this place today. May you free us from all the crap that we deal with, all the crap that we hide, all the junk that we try to disguise from others. Free us from that. Speak to us this morning. Let us hear you in a new way. Amen. Guys, go ahead and sit down. You know, as a pastor at a church, that list was super simple for me to come up with. Because it's the kind of stuff I deal with on a very regular basis. Probably almost daily. Where I'm engaging with people, and people are struggling with life issues. They're feeling abandoned and abused and misused and they have physical and emotional scars and they, they feel like they've been sold out and betrayed and they feel like they've been dumped and left for dead. And you know what I get to tell them? God is your refuge and your help. And they look around at the circumstances of their life and they go, really? Maybe I don't want his help. You know, it's not just you. I mean, I work at a church. It's not like, so I work at a church, so I don't have these issues that you people have, right? It's not how it works. Let's tell you a long time. My oldest son is 17 um, and and, an awesome kid. And and, uh, we had, when he was, when we were pregnant, we, I hate that. When my wife was pregnant, I I wasn't, but she was. When we were expecting him, we had it. It was just a very, very trying pregnancy to the point where at one point in, in, uh, we went into the emergency one night and they said, I'm sorry, you've lost your son. And they ordered up a medical procedure. And they're like, we, you know, you need to do some stuff to take care of this because uh, it'll, be, it'll cause toxic, toxicity if we don't take care of this. And so 
going to do that. And they're like, oh, you come back. Sorry, there's not a room available. Let's just, we're going to have to wait for a few minutes. Let's just do an ultrasound. Oh, he's still alive. Awesome. And he grew up, uh, now he's grown up and he's super, he's born at three, that means he's three pounds, I think, when he's born. And he's in ICU. He's born at seven months. He's um, in ICU for about a month and completely normal. Yeah, I mean, To me, <laughs> anyway, <laughs> you get what I'm saying. But and then and then uh, a year or two after that, we um, um, were expecting our second, and um, this was the dream pregnancy. My you know my wife was just everything was going great, and she just went in for one of her routine checkups, and the doctor says I have some bad news: your baby's dead. And uh, we were floored, and so they induced labor, and we gave birth. You know, we didn't; she did, and she gave birth um, to you know a dead baby. And I remember being in that, that room in that moment and uh, feeling crushed. I mean, to the point where Susie's holding a baby, Destiny Joy was her name, and just holding this baby, and I couldn't even bring myself to hold the baby. I felt alone, abandoned, lost, forgotten, uncared for, and about a thousand other things. And so did my wife. And I had to make sense of the claims in Psalm 46. Do you hear me? Are you there for me? Do you care? I think it's a pretty valid question. I want to look at more, more closely. We're in, we're in a series uh, called The Throne where we're looking at the claims that we find in the scripture where we're told to approach God's throne to get the things that he offers us. Last week, you, if you were here, you heard Dave and uh, just Dave uh, Nelson give a really, really super important message uh, about approaching God's throne to receive forgiveness. So many of us struggle on a daily basis to feel like we can be forgiven. And this week, I think I'm giving an equally important message about approaching God's throne in our times of need to receive help. And uh, what, you know, so the, 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 the actual natural question is, and so where do I get off telling people that God is there for them? Huh? You look around, where do I get off? And I just, I have the same answer every single time. God's word. It's the only place I can go. What I want to do is I want to look at Hebrews chapter 4. I want to look at a passage there, and you can kind of stick your thumb in your Bible if you have the Bible to kind of mark that. We're going to start there. I'm going to jump around and come back to this. So I'm just going to dive in, and I want to read this. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16 says this. Let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. We can approach his throne with confidence to receive what we need. And before I dive into that verse, I want to jump back to Genesis. We're going to start in chapter 37, and I'm just not, you're not going to see the scriptures up here because it's a bunch. It's, it's from 37 to pretty much the end of Genesis. And I just want to tell you the story that if, you grew up, if you've grown up in church, you've probably heard this story, and it's the story of this guy named Joseph. Or if, you're, you know, if you've gone to the theater, you may have seen Joseph in his Technicolor dream coat, right? Remember that? Yeah, well, that's about Joseph. And uh, Donny Osmond was fantastic in that. Anyway... Um, in this, here's the story, right? So Joseph is, his great-grandfather is Abraham, his grandfather is Isaac, and his dad is Jacob, right? That's the lineage from which Jesus Christ was born. 
Now, it's a pretty interesting story because Joseph is the youngest, and he's born to Jacob in his old age. And as a result, Jacob, is, Joseph is his favorite. <laughs> Says it, you know, because he's born in his old age, Joseph is Jacob's favorite, to the point where he buys the Technicolor dream coat for Joseph, and Joseph wears this coat around. It's almost like this walking, talking, poking the eye to the brothers, the half-brothers, because he's from this blended family, and the half-brothers really hate him because he's the favorite, right? And so he's constantly walking around with, look at me, the favorite coat, you know? And uh, he's a shepherd for his half-brothers. He works for them. And they finally get sick of it. So before that, they really hate him. And so what happens is he starts, Joseph starts having these uh, dreams, and they're like prophetic dreams. And so um, he, he shares the dreams with his brothers. Uh, and, he, and so the dreams kind of go like this. Like he says, let me tell you, uh, this dream that I had. Um, so in this dream, uh, there were all these bales of grain, right? And they, all re- they represent all of us. Uh, you know, all me and me and you and me and all the brothers here, and then um, what happens is they all stand up, and then the one in the middle is me, and you guys all bow down to me, and so that really helped mend the relationship uh, for favorite Joseph. But he didn't just have that dream; he had multiple dreams like this. He has this thing about stars and stars, and they're like, "Okay, we are done with Mr. Worship Boy." So um, they decide they're out in the sh- they're out in the fields and they're tending their flocks one day, and the brothers go, "Okay, he- we're done. We're gonna kill him." They, they come up with this plot to kill him because they can't take it anymore. And, so, and then Reuben, one of the brothers, goes, hold on. Let's not kill him. We'll get the blood on our hands. Let's just throw him in this abandoned pit, this old well, and then he can die a slow, painful death without us actually killing him. They thought that was more, you know, you know just a gentler approach, I guess. So they, they take, strip him naked. They take his coat off. They throw him in the well. And then in great callousness, they, it says, then they go have lunch. It's like a scene from Pulp Fiction. Right? And uh, so they take the coat, and then they sprinkle it with blood, and they rip it all up, and they go back to Dad, and they go, hey, Dad, tough break. Joseph got killed. Mm, what are you going to do? You know, tough, sorry. And, um, but what happens then is, is as they're having lunch, this caravan of, of uh, traders come by, and they're like, hey, wait a second. Let's sell them off, make a few bucks. We don't have to kill them, you know, whatever. So they sell them to this caravan of traders. Uh, and the caravan buys them, they take them over to Egypt, where they sell Joseph into slavery, and he becomes a servant to a slave to Potiphar, who is the captain of the guard in Pharaoh's palace. So Joseph is 17, his life dreams are coming into fruition. Everything is going right on, you know, Stanford is next, or I don't know. His life is not shaping up the way he, he probably envisioned, right? He's in... He's in uh, Potiphar's command, and he serves there. And then this is what's interesting. Uh, as he's serving, he starts to ascend the ranks. He actually becomes one of Potiphar's favorites, too. Not only is he one of Potiphar's favorites, he becomes kind of one of Potiphar's wife's favorites, too. <laughs> She's like, hey, that guy with the, you know, he's kind of nice. And so she starts going after him, going like, come on, you know, you, me, what do you say? And he's like, no, nah, I'm not going to do it. And so daily she's coming after him, trying to get him to, you know, have sex with her. And he's like, I'm not going to do it. So finally one day she gets really heated with him. They're talking, and she's grabbing him by the coat. And he's like, I'm not doing it. He runs off, and she holds onto the coat. She's got the coat. He escapes, runs through the palace. She goes, I got raped. He goes to jail for two years for doing the right thing. 
Well, he's in jail now, and he starts to ascend the ranks of jail, and he kind of gets the jail in order. And they, wow, two years later, he gets released back into Potiphar's command. So good stuff happening, sort of, I guess, as a slave. He serves 11 years as a slave. And then Pharaoh puts him in charge of the entire land of Egypt. He serves now seven more years in a time of prosperity where the crops are great and they they store all this food and everything. And then they have seven years of famine. And an interesting, hap- interesting thing happens during this entire time when Joseph is enslaved. So now he's 44 years old. He's sold into slavery at 17. So 27 years he's been, his whole adult life, he's been in slavery in Egypt. And we read this phrase that recurs over and over, and it says this. It says, and the Lord was with him, and the Lord was with him there too, and the Lord was with him. In jail, the Lord was with him, and in the pit, the Lord was with him. And as he's a slave to Potiphar, the Lord was with him, and it just happens over and over and over again. And I got to tell you, none of those things feel like the Lord was with him, do they? But not only was the Lord with him, the Lord was actually doing something quite amazing. And here's what's what's fantastic about this story, is that not only was the Lord doing something amazing, Joseph actually got it. Because I want to fast forward to the end of Genesis chapter 50, and what happens is, if you know the story, the brothers come, because they're in time of famine, they come and they have to get food from from, uh, the land of Egypt. So they, they come to get food from the person that's overseeing Egypt. Little did they know, it's their brother that they tried to kill and sold off into slavery, right? Now, like Shakespeare couldn't even write this stuff. So they come back and they're like, okay, let's go and let's ask this guy. And so they ask him and they're like, uh-oh, Joseph, bad news. And so they're saying, we're sorry, we're sorry. And here's the perspective that Joseph has that we read in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. It says this. You intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good. He brought me to this position so I could save the lives of many people. So, what happens here? Is, is they come back, he has his chance to exact justice, but he decides, no, 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 God brought me here for this purpose. And what the purpose was, this is really interesting. What we, un- we learned to understand is that where this clan of about 60 now migrates from where they were living in this land that become, over the next, to- next decades becomes excessively brutal, uncivilized with the Canaanites and the Amorites, a violent place, and they move and start, and they live in Egypt for the next 400 years as shepherds who are left alone by the Egyptians in relative safety. 400 years, and they grow from a clan of about 60 to 1.5 million people. The Israelites grow in that time in, in God's protection, and out of that line produces Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. See, now Joseph didn't have all those details yet, but what the thing that he got was, it doesn't matter in my immediate circumstances, I know God's doing something. And what we don't see at any time in the 44 years of Joseph's life during, or recorded in, in, in Scripture is any time where Joseph complains or blames or rejects God or doubts his essence is good. He just receives what God puts in front of him and continues to serve and follow the very God that allowed these things to happen to him. See, Joseph gets it. He got it. 
And the question for us is, do we get that? Or do we get stuck in our circumstances and stall out? So what happens a lot of times when we get in these tough circumstances where we feel like helpless or we need help or hopeless, we sort of default to these bad assumptions about God. And these bad assumptions go like this. If I don't get what I want, I'm done with God. He's no value to me. Or that my happiness is the ultimate gauge of God's goodness, right? That's how I know if God is good is if, if I'm happy. Or when bad things happen, God is not a good God and he doesn't care about me. Or how about this one? If I become a follower of Jesus Christ, my life will be just peachy. Actually, you want to know something? John chapter 16 tells us this. Here's a promise from God's word. You should hold on to this. In this life, we will have trouble. <laughs> See, the Bible never promises the easy life, the absence of evil or hard. He, what we are promised is hardship. And I just got to tell you, when bad things happen, it doesn't mean that God is not a good God. I'll just tell you this. My car was stolen uh, a while ago. Boo. Got it back. Yay. Reverse doesn't work. Boo. Insurance not covering it. Double boo. Does that mean that God is not good? It means my reverse doesn't work. Super inconvenient. I always have to park facing forward with an escape route. <laughs> See, the question to ask ourselves, obviously, is this. So what does he promise us? What does God promise us? And I want to dive back into this Hebrews chapter 4 passage and kind of dissect it a little bit because I think there's some really essential truth that we need to understand when we think about the nature of God in our times of need and how we can hold on to a promise. Look at this, Hebrews chapter 4, it says this, Then let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. And I want to look at three key words that we find in this passage. Three key words. And the first one is this grace. And that word is charis in the Greek. And it basically, it just means kindness, blessing, unearned favor, unearned merit, gift, blessing, that kind of stuff. Pretty much what you'd expect. And it appears twice in this verse. And the first time is kind of interesting. The first time it appears, it appears uh, to describe God's throne. Now, let me ask you something. It's called the throne of grace. And let me ask you this. When you think of God's throne or when you think of a throne, is the first word to come to your mind grace? No. Power, authority, right? That kind of stuff. Strength. See, but God's kingdom's a little bit different. And the first, first time we see this word is to understand that God's throne is a throne of unmerited favor and gift and blessing. You want to see a great example of the throne of grace? Joseph with his brothers. Great example of a throne of grace. The second time we see this word is it's used to describe what he offers to us in our time of need. That when we go to his throne of grace in need, he gives us the thing we haven't earned and the blessing we don't deserve. The second word is kind of interesting, mercy, in the Greek, it means mercy. But what's interesting about this is that it's actually tied to another word. It's tied to, you'll receive mercy and grace, and the two come together. What's interesting about this is mercy means that 
God does not give us what we do deserve, and grace means he gives us what we do not deserve. So when we go to his throne of grace, we get what we don't deserve and don't get what we do deserve, and that's a really good thing. Because the next word that we find in here is confidence, and the Greek word here literally is called parousia, and it literally means with freedom of speech. I come to God's throne with freedom of speech. You don't think of going before a king. Hey, king, you're kind of a jerk. You're doing a terrible job leading the country. Your wife's kind of ugly. Yeah, I mean, you just... But see, again, God's kingdom is different. And what happens in our times of need for many of us... Well, and let me just say this, by the way. Freedom of speech is a way that we approach the throne. You want to, want to know someone who understood that is the, guy, the writer of Psalm 46, David, and the writer of many of the Psalms, because what we find in the Psalms is a person who pours out his heart repeatedly about the injustices that he sees in the world and his inability to understand why God is doing certain things and allowing certain things and not stopping certain things. And then another person we see is Jeremiah, the writer of Lamentations. You know what Lamentations are? Lamentations are complaints, complaints, or emotional presentations of our grief. There's a whole book in the Old Testament that's dedicated to expressing our sadness and grief and complaints to God. And here's the key. Both these guys got it, but what they got was that God actually says in your time of need and in your time when you're feeling hopeless and lost, what I want you to do is don't run away from me. Come to me and tell me exactly what you feel. Exactly, because I can actually do something about it. And I, not only can I, I am in the middle of doing something about it. There's a parallel passage you'll find in Romans chapter 8, and it says this, we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. See, what happens is when we don't get what we want and we go to these bad assumptions about who God is, we play right into the hands of Satan, and in that very moment, we lose the battle because Satan is the deceiver, the adversary, the father of lies, the counterfeiter, the destroyer, the accuser. And what he wants us to do is separate ourselves from God and feel defeated and believe bad stuff that's not true about God so that we don't continue to follow him. But what does God want us to do? Well, First thing, I think three things, just as we close here this morning, three things. The first is this. We need to believe his promises. Look at Hebrews. Oh, you don't have this one up there. Hebrews 10, 23 says this. Let us hold tightly without wavering to the hope we affirm, for God can be trusted to keep his promise. Implied in this is an understanding that we know what God's promises are, and the way you know what God's promises are, you read God's word, which tells us what his promises are. Very, very important in his word. The second part of this is you have to answer this question for yourself. What are God's promises to you? If you do not know what his promises are, there's no way in the time of need that you're going to be able to embrace them. Go to the tank and it's empty. I just wrote this quick list. What are his promises? He promises never to leave us, promises never to turn his back on us, he'll forgive us. 
That's Hebrews and Ephesians. He cares for us. First Peter, Holy Spirit will guide us. John 16. And that's just a quick list. The list goes on and on. I got to tell you, in a time of need, the thing you need to do is embrace the truth and the promises that Jesus makes to us. Because point number two is this, that we must let, I say this all the time, let truth inform your feelings. Don't let feelings inform the truth. Because when you feel something, it's not necessarily true. And when you recite the truth and you go over and over the promises of God in your life and you keep telling yourself, this is God's claim, I believe it to be true, you know what will happen? Your feelings will eventually catch up with the truth. But if you follow your feelings, it doesn't change the truth. It just gives you the wrong understanding of what truth is. So embrace, embrace his promises. Let truth inform your feelings. And the third thing is this. Embrace the body of Christ. When you are in your times of need, Satan wants us to run away so we're isolated and we have no hope. But Jesus says, no, come to me and go to my people. We're the body of Christ. And if you're not in a time of need, then maybe God is wanting you to be available to help someone who is. And if you are in a time of need, get rid of the shame. Get rid of the guilt because we're all jacked up. Just so you know, we're all jacked up and we all need people. Go to the very place where God promises to help meet your need physically. And that's here at the church, here with your people. In the band, you guys can come on up as we close here. I just want us, again... Just every Sunday, every single Sunday, I just want you to know that we have a team of prayer people that would love, I don't know where you are, I don't know what's going on in your life, I do know that every single one of us need help at different times in our life, and today may be a day that you need it. And we have people who would love the opportunity to sit with you and go into detail to join you in praying and helping you get in the presence of God to understand the help he wants to offer you. Believe the truth claim his promises and come to him for help. Will you pray with me? Jesus, we love you. We don't understand you. We're messed up and we have bad assumptions about you. But the truth is that you love us deeply and you care for us and you desire great things in our lives. Please, please, please. Help us understand that. Help us know that in our hearts, not just in our heads. May you change us. Lead us in your presence, Jesus. We ask this in your name.